Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 52. And since we're a weekly podcast, this means that this episode marks our one-year anniversary. And although we can't very well celebrate with cake and ice cream, more's the pity, we can celebrate with a big fat helping of fantasy. This week we're bringing you one long piece of fantasy preceded by an informative little piece of flash, so let's get right to it, shall we? We open this week with The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Monsters by Alex Schwarzman. Alex is a writer and game designer from Brooklyn, New York. More than 60 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Galaxy's Edge, Daily Science Fiction and many other venues, including here at the Triple F. He's the winner of the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction. He edits Unidentified Funny Objects, an annual anthology of humorous science fiction and fantasy. His short story collection, Explaining Thulu to Grandma, was released earlier this year. Check out Requiem for a Druid, which we ran back in episode 42. You can learn more about him by following the link on the Triple F. Our narrator for The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Monsters is none other than yours truly. And in case you haven't heard my bio in some time, I currently live in the wilds of almost Eastern Europe with my long-suffering husband, phenomenal children and one grumpy cat. Trained as an actress and a singer, I have worked in entertainment for over 20 years and currently split my time between writing speculative fiction helping my husband run our voiceover company, Aufstimmer, and voicing everything from commercials and documentaries to public transport announcements. I also host this podcast. 
It's time to listen up, everyone, and learn The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Monsters by Alex Schwarzman. It isn't easy being green, scaly, or abominable these days. Humanity turned the tables on the apex predators of the food chain and has been exterminating us with extreme prejudice. We're still faster and stronger than they are, but we're prone to defeat by bad judgment. Heed the lessons of our vanquished brethren, learn from their mistakes, and remain successful, extant, and satiated. Number one. Don't rely on henchmen. There's no denying that it is emotionally satisfying to be worshipped, or at least obeyed, by humans. However, there is little practical benefit. In the entire history of henchmen, cultists, minions, lackeys and worshippers, one is hard-pressed to come up with a single paragon of effectiveness. Instead, they tend to be slow, dim-witted and clumsy. At best, your followers might mildly inconvenience your adversary as he or she rampages through your lair or secret laboratory, sharp object of destiny in hand. At worst, they might develop last-minute regrets and attempt to throw you down the nearest shaft. So next time someone asks if you're a god, just eat them. Number two. Heed the warning signs. Ignoring the obvious means you're just asking for trouble. For example, vampires and other beings highly allergic to vitamin D are advised to steer clear of towns with the word sunny in their name. That's just common sense. There are plenty of better targets, places with names that evoke gothic dread and despair, names like Gloaming Creek, Murky Hallow, Gloomsburg, or Detroit. Number three. Be aware of your surroundings. Don't climb skyscrapers. There's little room to manoeuvre up there and the position isn't defensible. If your adversary is running away, they are almost certainly leading you into a trap. Pre-plan your retreat. Always know the shortest route to the nearest sewer, secret passage or interdimensional portal. If retreat isn't an option... Pretend to be their friend. A surprising number of humans will fall for a few sparkles in a tortured expression. Number four. Practice safe invading. When invading alien planets, be sure that all your vaccinations are up to date. Your mothership's operating system shouldn't be compatible with the latest in Earth's computer virus technology. Whatever resources you seek on Earth... Water, oxygen, landmass to terraform are cheap and plentiful elsewhere in the universe. If you've achieved interstellar flight, your robots are probably safer, smarter and longer-lasting than human slave labour. Number five. Mix it up. Adjust your tactics to keep your nemeses guessing. It's okay not to eat the lone black guy first. The rest of his party will never expect it if you start with someone else. Stab your adversary in the middle of explaining your nefarious plan to them. 
Don't place your calls from inside the house. Number six. Hunt safely. On average, few modern humans have access to silver bullets, pitchforks, or wooden stakes soaked in holy water. Improbably, the odds of anyone who encounters a monster possessing such items rise exponentially. Always comport yourself as though everyone has access to the one thing that can pierce your otherwise indestructible skin or body armour. Number seven. Reconsider. Even if you meticulously prepare your schemes and pay careful attention to the safety tips above, at the end of the day you must ask yourself, is it really worth it? The most dangerous monster of all is man. For best results, avoid encounters at all costs. The end. <laughs> Some excellent advice for the would-be monstrous predator, don't you think? But the best advice of all, I think, is the final question. Is it really worth it? I mean, we humans appear to be surprisingly resilient in the face of green, scaly or abominable monstrosities, but where would be the fun in that? Well, it's time to move on from the monster's advice column to our main fantasy, Mask of 67 by David Prill. David is the author of The Unnatural, Serial Killer Days, Second Coming Attractions, Dating Secrets of the Dead, and numerous off-trail stories which have appeared in The Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, Subterranean Magazine, various Ellen Datlow projects, and a number of fine anthologies. The New York Times Book Review said The Unnatural was the funniest book about the funeral business since Evelyn Waugh's The Loved One. Serial Killer Days was purchased by Paramount Pictures, and the Des Moines Register called David Prill one of the funniest, most astute writers in America. The Mask of 67 was part of the World Fantasy Award-winning anthology Salon Fantastique. Elizabeth Hand, writing in fantasy and science fiction, called The Mask of 67 one of the most memorable stories I've read in years. It alone is worth the price of admission to this collection. You can find out more about David at davidprill.net Narrating the Mask of 67 is Matthew Fredrickson, for which I personally would like to say a big thank you. We had so much trouble getting this narrated the right way. Matthew is in his mid-thirties, living in Memphis, Tennessee, with a rock star plastic surgeon wife. He reads and writes and runs in his spare time, though I have to imagine not all at the same time. He loves to brew beer, and he'd love to make that his career. He will soon start the second season of his podcast, Freddy's Fan Fiction, and you can find him on Twitter as at Swami. It's time now to roll back the calendar to 1967 and listen to The Mask of 67 by David Prill. Our Hollywood star comes home. You know the drill. Small-town girl makes it big, returns to her priceless past to grin and bear the locally crafted gifts and blessings. It began at the train station, where all decent homecoming stories begin. The station is usually a yawny place. Pete, the chicken man, Griff, the baggage man, 
the usual loafers laying odds on the arrival and departure times. Crazy times would have been more the ticket. But on the day she came back, we small-towned up like hadn't been seen around here since the sesquicentennial. The fire hall band, banners, clowns, politicians, ice cold... Well, you get the idea. Welcome home, Betty Lynn Balmer. The train harumphed to a stop at the station, which had gotten a facelift a couple of years ago, as if preparing for this very day. A trainman hopped off and set up a step on the platform, at the door to the passenger car. A red carpet would have been in order, too. That's how good people felt. The crowd seemed to crane forward as one when the passengers began getting off the train. Even the single men who lived in the apartments above the storefronts leaned out of their windows, bare tattooed arms resting on the sills, cigarettes burning low, wise guy looks on their unshaven faces. Those that disembarked from the train gaped at the crowd, heard the news, turned, and joined right in. This was a community cause, a point of celebration. Shouldering his way right up to the front was Big Jim McDiffie. He had dated Betty in high school. He, the big football quarterback, she, the head cheerleader. They were the homecoming royalty. He had even given her a ring. Now, Big Jim looked like he had a couple of footballs tucked under his shirt. He took a run at a nearby community college after graduation, before scrambling back to town for good. He had worked at Wally Beamer's Olds dealership out on the highway for 15 years, before getting fired last month for drinking while test driving. Divorced once, a couple of grown children, long gone, their calls coming mostly on major holidays. When Betty Lynn appeared, standing there on the top step in all her strange splendor, the band lost its breath, their last notes a strain. The air left the clown's shoes, balloon animals ducking for cover in a squeaky panic. The crowd was too crowded to get away, the hubbub dropped to a hush, and you couldn't hear anything. Quiet as death on the outside, a mad rushing on the inside. In their heads, see? You could see it in their eyes. They didn't want to look, but they couldn't look away, neither. How could he not look? You're expecting that million Somalian smile, those land-of-sky-blue water's eyes, that hair of a tawny stallion, and you get a metal mask on that cheerleader head. It wasn't exactly a goalie mask, or a mask you might see on a burn victim. It was almost a work of art, an off-trail combination of the sleek and the medieval, intersecting loops around that lovely homecoming head. The sunlight glinted off the metal, and as she turned her head, it was like she was blessing the crowd with some beams from beyond. You couldn't really see her face, so maybe it wasn't Betty after all, an optimistic few hoped. It could have been anybody behind that metal mask. Hopefully someone who disembarked in error, who intended to get off the train a few stops down the tracks, at a town with a more freakish pedigree than ours. But that dress, white and frilly, just like the one in Rainbows Over Innsmouth, and her long hair, rumpled as it was by the mask, right out of At the Mountains of Merriment. Oh, it was Betty, all right. She exuded Bettiness. Since she had become a near star, we had studied her form, her posture, 
the way she walked, the way she brushed her teeth, everything about her. She was the most excellent person ever to come out of our town. The world knew about us through her, we thought. We thought about her a lot. We thought we knew her better than she did herself. Sure, there were gasps. Of course there were cries. Was there a scream? So it would seem. She just stood there, beaming on everyone. And then the crowd did something funny. It stopped being a crowd. It broke up as fast as a Hollywood couple, a subconscious instant poll, everyone going this way and that, back to whatever they would normally be doing on a beautiful Saturday afternoon. Mowing the grass, or playing kitten ball, or maybe even going out for an ice cream at the Big Swirl. Anything to get some normal-feeling vibes back into their bones again. Even the politicians melted into the remains of the gathering. You knew right then this was pretty serious business. The only bold souls who held fast were Big Jim and the mayor. You could see Mayor Bixley was in a big-league dilemma. He wanted as bad as anyone to leave the scene of this train wreck of a celebration. He didn't want to be anywhere near the mask and whatever lay behind it. But he knew in his heart that it was his responsibility to deal with the situation. He took an oath of office, after all, although he was darned if he could remember much of it at this critical juncture. He did recall the storm of 61, a monster tornado that sheared off the south end of Main Street, uh, the blizzard of 65, which buried the town in drifts up to the second stories of the Main Street stores. And now, the Mask of 67, and whatever story it held in store for the town. The mayor took a step forward, the step back, like he was square dancing, then finally found the gumption and stepped up to the platform. Big Jim, close behind, faced to mask with what he hoped was still, at her heart, our Betty. Uh, welcome, uh, on behalf of the fine people of... The mayor glanced back as even the slow-footed finally fled the scene. Uh, on behalf of the mayor's office, I'd like to welcome you back to... To... What was the name of that town again, mayor? He could see a bit of her eyes through the metal. And this bit is what he focused tight on, trying vainly to block away the rest. It's all right, Mr. Mayor. It's been a long trip. I'm very tired. Is the Quint Hotel still in business? Her voice sounded reasonably normal, not metallic or automatonish at all. Why, yes, it is. Would it be possible for someone to give me a ride there? Here was where Big Jim stepped up. Betty Lynn, I would be happy to give you a ride. That is, if it's not an imposition, Mr. Mayor. Uh, no, no, not at all. You help yourself, my boy, said the most relieved man in the country, shoving Big Jim into his place on the platform. Should I have your bag sent over to the hotel, then? the mayor asked, retreating in record time back toward the station. Yes, thank you, the homecoming girl said placidly. Now Big Jim and Betty Lynn stood all by themselves on the platform, in the station, and most likely in a three-block square perimeter. Although there was silence now, the casual observer would not characterize it as an awkward silence. It was a normal silence for two people, 
former consorts, one whose face was uncovered, the others masked in a very medieval and perhaps sleek fashion. It's been a long time, Betty Lynn. Yes, Jim, it has. Now here's a question that people have pondered ages after all this happened. How was Big Jim able to look beyond or between the mask while the other would-be well-wishers couldn't bear to be in the same zip code? Was it love? Blind, stupid, incoherent love? Did she still burn so brightly in his heart that the mask was no more than a beauty mark to his eyes? Or was he just desperate? His dreams of the perfect life so lost that he would grab hold of any residue, in any form it took, that brought him back to the happier times he once knew. This Betty reminded him of the lost golden youth he had left behind, and no matter what it looked like, even if he didn't know what it looked like, he was going to grab onto it and not let go. It wasn't going to get away again, not this time. The ring would stay on her finger. That's how bad his heart was these days. That was the theory, anyway. I have a confession to make, Betty Lynn. Yes, Jim? I don't have a car. I mean, not here. I walked. It's only three blocks to the hotel. Do you mind walking? Not at all. It was a long trip. It would be good to stretch my legs. So they walked. Somewhat like they had walked together years earlier, although it would be a stretch to say it was just like old times. The looks they got from the man on the street were old, too. Ancient, primordial looks. The looks on the protruding faces of Neanderthal man when the shadow of a saber-toothed tiger appeared outside his cave. Not as many stares from those off the street, but trembling blinds on the closed shop windows. They still didn't want to look, but couldn't look away, etc. Except for Clem at the fix-it shop, who said non-judgmentally, what kind of metal is that, then? Stainless steel? Well, by golly, you sure won't have to worry about rust. Which left plenty of time for some tentative reminiscing, avoiding the obvious, which had nothing to do with old times and everything to do with these strange new times. So, Betty Lynn, does the old hometown still look like you remembered it? Pretty much, I think. I suppose a lot of the old gang are gone. A lot of them, yeah. A lot of them are coming back for the reunion, though. To remember the times when we were young. But you stayed. I feel comfortable here. I had some bad luck, too. A rotten marriage, some drinking implied, staying with my ma now. Yeah, pretty funny for a guy my age. But she needs someone now, with Dad gone, then. It's just a temporary thing until I get myself squared away. Hopefully sooner rather than later. You don't have to explain, Jim. I think it's very gallant of you. She stopped in front of the Princess Movie Theater, closed down now, the torn edge of a poster still in one of the display windows. Only one word was visible, and that was thrills. That's too bad. We saw Blue Hawaii here, and Clambake, remember? Clambake, Big Jim said wistfully. Seems like yesterday. 
In short order they arrived at the Quint Hotel, which in its time hosted governors and captains of industry. Its time was gone, though, and the building had taken on a seediness that was unique in these parts. What passed for less-than-savory characters in Millville called it home. Maybe Betty Lynn would fit right in, too. Was now the time for the Quint to host not just the off-beat, but the out-and-out outre? As soon as they headed across the dim lobby to the front desk, the clerk began shaking his head with a firmness that seemed to come deep from within. "'Sorry, we're full up. No rooms available.' "'The quint hasn't been filled up since President Eisenhower came to town. "'Well, maybe Ike is making a comeback because we're all booked up.' "'There's laws against this sort of thing, Chet.' The clerk grabbed Jim's sleeve and dragged him down to the end of the counter, sending the guest book, pens, and a pocket calendar from Strum Funeral Home spinning to the floor. Whispering with fear and urgency, "'Now, Big Jim, you should have known better than to bring her in here. She can't stay here. She'd empty out the joint in an hour. I've got some long-term residence here. That's real money. Don't forget that!' The thugs and mugs you let hole up in here, and you're telling me that Betty Lynn can't— "'I'm telling you, Big Jim, she can't stay!' "'Is there a motel in town?' Betty Lynn asked politely, her mask filling with shadows. "'We can do better than that,' said Big Jim. "'Come on.' He took Betty Lynn by the arm, which felt solidly flesh-like, not that he was expecting anything else, and made for the door. "'Hang on a minute,' Big Jim said, going over to the payphone. He dug through his dungarees for a dime and stuck it into the slot. Dialed that familiar number, Tuxedo 13094. Hello, Ma? It's me. I'm downtown. Yeah, sure. You betcha. Uh, oh, yeah. In fact, she's here with me right now. Yeah, no kidding. Dinner? I'll ask. His mother hadn't heard what took place at the train station. She hadn't heard about the gasps. Ditto for the cries, or it would seem that single exclamation point of a scream. "'I'd like that very much,' said Betty Lynn. "'She said yes. "'Well, great. We'll be home in a few minutes. Bye, Ma.' He wondered if he should have told her about the mask. They went outside and headed up Elm Street, another gauntlet of howling dogs and anxious children wondering why Halloween was happening in the middle of summer— cocktail hour arriving early and heavy for their parents. It was only a mask, people. A metal mask. But it really was more a question of what was behind the mask. The not knowing, in a town that built in the heart of the city park, an abstract limestone monument called Routine. Dinner would be fine, his mom was a swell cook, but Big Jim did admit he was beginning to wonder what would happen when Betty Lynn tried to eat. "'Mom, you remember Betty Lynn?' "'Probably not like this, but Mom didn't let on. "'Oh, she had met her share of deformed and unnatural folks in her lifetime. "'Armless farm accident victims, burn victims from the hog-butchering plant fire of 51. "'A few inbreeding casualties. "'She had experience in the art of being pleasant in the face of faces that weren't quite what they should be. "'She smiled big.' welcomed Betty Lynn back to town, and if maybe a little tick started above one eye, well, that wasn't so bad. "'We're very proud of you, dear,' Mom said, ushering them to the kitchen table. "'It must be so exciting to live in Hollywood, making movies and all.' 
"'It has its ups and downs,' Betty Lynn said, not at all cryptically. Mom served dinner. Meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Lime jello and pear salad. A look of puzzlement passed over Mom's face, not comprehending how her guest would eat, how to smile around it if she couldn't. Perhaps she should have offered her a straw. Maybe it wasn't too late. Betty Lynn rose. Would it be all right if I used your phone, Mrs. McDiffie? You help yourself, hun, right in the kitchen, right next to the spice rack. With Betty Lynn out of earshot, Big Jim's mom's tick became a two-eye phenomena, twitching in an alternating fashion. Big Jim tapped his foot in time, thinking the expression on his ma's face was saying, Do you think she took offense at the spice rack comment? But there was no time for regrets as they honed in on the conversation finding its way to their ears from the kitchen. Yes, I would like that. No, but I wouldn't like that. Oh, yes, I would definitely like that. Say again? Oh, no, I don't think I'd like that. Well, maybe. Yes, 332 Old Horseshoe Road. That's our address, mother and son both thought. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye. Betty Lynn returned to the table and addressed Mrs. McDiffie. I don't mean to impose, but would it be okay if a good friend of mine joins us? Why, of course, said Mom, a third tick now on a smile line in the corner of her mouth. She smiled wider, hoping it would mask the tremor. Thank you. He'll be here shortly. Before Big Jim could raise his fork to his mouth, heavy footsteps sounded on the front porch. He sat up straight. Mom couldn't smile any wider. Sort of froze that way. The footfalls did stop. A heavy knock. Two. Square on the door. I'll get it, Big Jim said, pushing himself away from the table, nearly tumbling over backwards. At the door he hesitated, picturing a man in a sleek and medieval mask, then wiped the sweat from his hand and opened the thing already. Hi, folks. Chet at the hotel thought you were headed out here. Mayor Bixley. Got your bags, Betty Lynn, the mayor called out. Whoa, do I smell meatloaf? He invited himself in while Big Jim retrieved her luggage from the porch. "'Come join us, Mayor,' said Mrs. McDiffie, perhaps a little too eagerly, hurrying into the living room. "'I'll set a plate for you.' "'Don't mean to impose on you nice folks.' "'Oh, it's no imposition at all, is it, son?' "'No, Ma, not at all.' He left her bags by the stairs. There was strength in numbers. Going back into the dining room, Big Jim and his mother caught sight of Betty Lynn's plate, which had been cleaned while they were distracted by the Mayor's arrival. The mask was clean, too. Well, that was different. So the three of them sat down to finish the meal, while Betty Lynn did whatever people with masks did after mysteriously downing one of the three squares. Well, Big Jim, I suppose you're getting your salt-and-pepper suit all ready for the big class reunion dance, then, said the mayor, wolfing his loaf. I sure am, mayor. All the old gang will be there, Freddie Smith and Larry Bother and Little Gus, too. "'What's little Gus doing these days, then?' "'Insurance, I hear. "'Steady work, for sure.' "'Betty Lynn, are you going to the dance?' Mom asked. "'I thought I might.' "'Maybe you could escort her, James.' "'Oh, Ma, I'm old enough to handle my own social life, for gosh sake. "'Betty Lynn just got here. "'Don't want her to feel rushed. 
and her friend is coming anyway. When did you say he was coming then? Mom asked Betty. Oh, he'll be here, she said with confidence. Dessert time came first. Angel food cake with whipped cream out of a tub, no less. But Betty's friend still had not shown his face. Even during coffee in the living room, waiting for the clump, 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 the knock, 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 the fear, 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 the door opens and... The mayor seemed to be getting a bit agitated. Perhaps the coffee was too strong. Yes, that was why he rose from the sofa, which was unstrategically located directly across from the easy chair where Betty Lynn was seated. "'Sorry to run off like this, folks,' edging toward the door. "'But I have a planning commission meeting to attend.' At the door. "'Thank you so much for your hospitality, Mrs. McDiffie. The meatloaf was top-notch.' I can't help himself glance at Betty Lynn. "'It's a meal I'll remember for a long time to come.' And his big car went zoom. One feels a certain security when a major public official is in your midst. It's like the whole town is present.' Maybe it's the weight, the aura, the accumulated votes that is sensed. The image of what he represents as taught in every civics class in every corner of the United States of America. Or maybe it's just the official's own ego shining through. Or his ability to summon law enforcement in a hurry. Or that he has a direct line to the governor. Whatever, there was a feeling of reassurance in the air when the mayor was in the room. Colder and Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Lonelier after he left, like they were five-year-olds walking in circles in the big woods outside town. Fortunately, Betty Lynn appeared to yawn, her head tilting to that position anyway, a soft mewing sound heard from behind her facial hardware. That seemed to be a signal. Ma, Betty Lynn doesn't have anywhere to stay tonight, announced Big Jim. The hotel was full up. Goodness, said Mom, setting down her coffee cup in a jittery sort of way. Why don't you stay with us, Betty Lynn? You can have Julie's old room. 
Oh, Mrs. McDiffie, I wouldn't want to impose. Bosh! There will be no argument. James, why don't you take Betty Lynn's bags upstairs and show her where she'll be sleeping? Sure, Ma. Big Jim fetched her bags and toted them up the creaky stairs to the second floor of the old house, their guest following. He set them down outside the door to his kid sister's room and turned back to look at Betty Lynn. The moonlight streaming in through the window at the end of the hall framed her, the beams warming the mask almost to the point of beauty. The rest of her had always been pretty. Big Jim felt emotions. I... It's really great that you came back to town, Betty Lynn. It makes me think of old times. We really had some fine times. Remember... Remember the time when we went to the county fair and I won that stuffed giraffe for you in the cat pitch? And the ring I bought you on the way home? I remember that ring. What a funny, perfect ring that was. But she didn't say any more, and Big Jim couldn't see her eyes, so he led her up into his little sister's room, switching on the bedside horsey lamp. The room was just as she left it when she cut out for her college years. Big Jim set her bags by the closet. He felt funny for letting his emotions escape and hid from them by playing the bellhop. Bathroom is by the stairs on your right. If you need anything, my mom is down at the other end of the hall. Thank you, she said, and squeezed his hand just for a moment. But that moment was enough. Big Jim couldn't sleep. He couldn't get his mind off Betty Lynn. Here she was, under the same roof, the roof he grew up under, even after whatever they had between them was over. In darkness, away from mirrors and windows that told the real story, it was easy to imagine himself in high school again. His state of mind never changed as much as his waistline, but everyone else seemed to have moved on. Why, when they were having so much fun? People moved away, thinking the grass was greener elsewhere when in fact it was only cut in a different pattern. He would ask her to the dance. Not now, in the morning, when she was refreshed and his nerve was rejuvenated. The stranger on the phone, her good friend, hadn't shown up, so he felt like the door was still open. Big Jim still chewed on his life sleeplessly, his mind working like it never had before, almost as if it was making up for all those years when it was hardly working at all. And then he heard the noise coming from somewhere in the house, upstairs, down the hall, a metal-on-metal metal sound, one piece of metal striking the other, clack, 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 another sound, a human sound, a sound of discomfort, not a scream or a cry, just a human sound, a sound that said no, or maybe yes. Big Jim looked at the time. 2 a.m. He sat up, eyeing the hallway. Maybe she was just brushing her teeth, or trying to wash up, or taking off her mask for the night. By the time Big Jim had crept out of his room, step by careful step in his stocking feet, a little hole in the big toe, and made it into the hall, the metal-on-metal metal sound had stopped, replaced by a sound behind him, from outside the house, 
footsteps tapping along the sidewalk. Or was that more of a tap, drag, tap, drag? Big Jim reversed course back into his own room and found the window. He caught just a glimpse. No, not even a glimpse. A shadow. A slice of shadow. The suggestion of a shadow disappearing in the deeper shadows of the heavy cedars on the corner. And then the shadow and the sound were goners. Big Jim went back into the hallway. Quiet again. No light coming from under Betty Lynn's door. You can all go home now. The show was over. Or maybe, Big Jim thought as he went back to bed, it's just begun. Speculation about what was behind the mask ran through town like an Avon lady on diet pills. Plastic surgery gone awry. Disfigured by fire. A python hairdo. Nothing too extreme, however. Nothing too beyond their imaginations. Maybe she's just researching a movie role, Mom said cheerily when Big Jim came down for his bowl of sugar-frosted jets. It was almost nine. Betty Lynn hadn't made an appearance yet. A movie role? A horror movie or something. I don't know. It certainly would explain a lot. Mom had been thinking, too, apparently. I don't know. You think she would have mentioned something? And that fellow who was supposed to show up last night. Maybe... maybe he was the director. Unwanted thoughts be gone. Maybe he'll put us all in the movies. Wouldn't that be something? Thoughts about last night. Or maybe it's one of those hidden camera shows. The joke will be on us, that's for sure. Did she hear or see something odd, too? I'll cook up some blueberry pancakes and sausage links. Why don't you go upstairs and get little Miss Sleepyhead out of bed? She's probably still tired from her trip. It wouldn't hurt to knock on her door to see if she's awake. All right, Ma. I'll go see. Big Jim tried to do it quietly. Didn't want to startle her if she was still in dreamland or the country of the mask. He nudged the door harder until it creaked, until he could see her. He had to look no matter what his imagination was making him see. What he could see was Betty Lynn, at least her bare legs, the rest of her covered by the white chenille blanket, like there was nothing wrong with her. And the thought came to Big Jim that maybe whatever happened last night, if she did have a visitor, then maybe he was a force of good and freed her. Maybe that was the noise he heard. The sleeper turned onto her back, the covers slipping off her head. Her mask hadn't gone anywhere. As it was at the moment she stepped off the train. As it was for how long before that. She stretched then, bearing her arms, the right a rare beauty, the left encased in a very sleek and medieval way. Big Jim reeled back into the hallway, banging against the opposite wall, a framed Norman Rockwell print, Mother's Little Angel, the angel unable to stay aloft, crash-landing to the polished wooden floor. "'What on earth?' his mother's voice came from below. Big Jim met her at the bottom of the stairs. "'She... she... she...' Before he could articulate what it was she was, 
Betty Lynn appeared at the top of the stairs. Heavens! The intricate cages of metal now hugged both her head and her left arm, from shoulder to fingertip. They joined somewhere up near her shoulder blades. They made the best of the situation, a head and arm really not much worse than a head itself. So she had another body part covered with a dern mask. That didn't make her a bad person. Breakfast went okay, considering Betty Lynn's fashion statement, apparently eating her pancakes when the others were momentarily distracted by the distinctive call of the pileated woodpecker. Betty Lynn offered to help with the dishes, but Mom shooed them out of her kitchen, and they went out on the porch to sit in the mid-morning sun. The metal screen on the door reminded Big Jim of her. "'I bet this is a little slower-paced way of living than you're used to,' Big Jim said, as they rocked in wicker chairs, the wood a real relief. "'I like it,' she said. "'The sky looks so clean. It's so peaceful and everything.' There was never a right time. "'Betty Lynn,' Big Jim began, I, "'I was wondering if you'd like to go with me to the—' Straight ahead, coming down the sidewalk on the opposite side of the street, a trio of teenage girls, walking that optimistic gait that only teenage girls can walk, decked out in bell-bottoms and white glitter t-shirts, each wearing what appeared to be tin-foil versions of Betty Lynn's mask.' They saw Betty Lynn on the porch and waved with animation. She waved back with metal, and they almost swooned. They weren't mocking her. They were aping her. Betty Lynn was a Hollywood trendsetter. Usually, trends took months to make it to the heartland, if they made it out here at all. Now they had to hurry home and rig up something for their own tender arms. It was grand to be young. They remind me of when I was in high school. Betty Lynn said, with perhaps a hint of wistfulness in her voice. Betty Lynn? Betty Lynn, I was wondering, well, if you would want to go to the reunion dance with me. We used to go to dances a lot, didn't we? We sure did. Remember, remember that time we went to that dance at the Excelsior Park Ballroom and the cops raided it? I had forgotten all about that. I was so scared. Gosh, that was a swell time. But she said nothing more about his proposition, and he feared rejection, and a soul-crashing rejection it would be. He ran from the subject altogether, ashamed every step of the way. I bet you've met a lot of interesting people out there in Hollywood, he said. Oh, sure. His freshly prowling mind kept returning to the shadow on the sidewalk, the sound of metal on metal. I bet you go to a lot of interesting places out there in Hollywood. I'm pretty busy most of the time. This wasn't good, as bad as talking about the weather. It did look like a cold front was coming through, and man, look at those cirrus clouds. No, no, have to nudge the conversation back onto personal things. The ring. Betty Lynn, uh, do you still have the ring I gave you? I don't mean that in the way it sounds. I didn't expect you to be wearing it or anything. I was just... I understand. Curious. Of course. Okay. The phone rang from inside. Mom came out onto the porch. 
Betty Lynn, it's for you. Thank you, Betty Lynn rose. I'll be right back, she said to Big Jim. The girls went inside. Big Jim couldn't hear what was said. He didn't want to hear. It was hard enough to look, to see. In a few moments, Betty Lynn reappeared, resumed her rocking. She looked at Big Jim, mask full frontal, and said in an abrupt yet friendly way, Why, yes, Jim, I'd be happy to go to the dance with you. That meant a new dress, but the shops they visited were coincidentally all out. Even the ones they could see packed on the racks were spoken for. Big Jim didn't know much about shopping for women's clothes, so he gave them a pass. Anyway, given Betty Lynn's current state, the alterations bill would have been staggering. As they attempted to shop, Big Jim kept hoping for a breakthrough with Betty Lynn, something to lift him out of his woulda-coulda life and open up, revive his relationship with the cheerleader head. Why did we break up, he wondered, trying to recollect. They didn't so much break up as break apart. They had something between them, and then the next thing he knew, they didn't have it anymore. Like an all-conference quarterback who suddenly couldn't hit his receivers. There were a lot of things he didn't know much about, Big Jim realized, and not for the first time. Realizing you don't know is half the battle. He wondered how she remembered their split. Was it hard on her? She left town, but that probably didn't have anything to do with him. She wanted to be a big star. Didn't she? Was this all my fault? Big Jim wondered. They hit their old haunts. Awesome's drive-in. Best burgers and malts in the county. Closed last year. Even loiterers would have looked good now. Queen Anne Kittyland for its once beautiful merry-go-round. Perfect for the big kids they were. Abandoned now. The horses sold off at auction. The rest of the grounds a graveyard of rust and ruin, no more likely to be revived than the childhoods of its visitors. The jungles, the secret wooded area behind the high school, still there, but oak blight had taken its toll, and the scene of so many illicit pastimes seemed so slight and sad, unable to hide even the smallest of sins. They smiled and laughed, but inside Big Jim was feeling something lacking. How do you feel what isn't there? The sense that something should be there but ain't? Like the phantom arm of an amputee. Maybe the spark just wasn't there anymore. Some of the life had gone out of the town, too. But it's more than that, Big Jim thought. Betty Lynn is hiding from me. It seemed like the more of her body was hidden, the more of her heart was taken away. Questions hung in the air like fog along the lake shore. Where do you live? You wouldn't have heard of it. What does your family think about your fame? Florida is so far away. Do you remember what the ring looked like? It was a funny thing, wasn't it? It was funny. It was so different. They had bought it from a scruffy man who set up a peach crate stand along the edge of the county fairgrounds one day in the middle of the fair's mid-August run. They had been looking for something to symbolize their relationship, the bond they felt, nothing so extreme as an engagement ring, something original and interesting. At first they didn't see anything in the man's purple velvet-lined case. Then, tucked into the dusty corner of the display, 
Betty Lynn dug out the ring. It fit her perfectly. He only charged them five bucks for it. From that day forward until the day they broke apart, Betty Lynn wore it on her finger. That night, Big Jim slept the sleep of the disturbed. He listened for her visitor and was not disappointed. But by the time he reached Betty Lynn's room, the stranger was gone. He was like that. Her left leg was now masked. As her affliction evolved, the sleekness seemed to fade, and the medievalness became dominant. There was no choice now, thought Big Jim, backing out of her doorway. He calmly headed downstairs, through the kitchen, then down to the basement, flipping on the light. He removed several items from the tool rack and returned to the upper levels. "'I'm not going to lose you again,' Big Jim thought, going into her room, kneeling down by the bed. He proceeded to work on her leg armor with a needle-nose pliers, trying to twist the metal, but it wouldn't budge, Betty Lynn waking up before he could get busy with the hacksaw. "'Jim!' "'What are you doing?' she pulled away from him, sitting up against the headboard. "'You can't do that,' she insisted. "'You just can't!' She said it in an upset but not angry way, as if they didn't have permission. By the time the big dance rolled around, the only part of Betty Lynn unmasked was her right leg. Even the teenage girls couldn't keep up with her. The nocturnal visits had continued— became almost routine, and although Big Jim lay in wait, the stranger always managed to get in and do his dark work before Big Jim could intervene. She had apparently stopped eating. Did she drink? He didn't know. Did she use the toilet? He wasn't sure. It was awkward for her to move about, but she managed. She sat on the porch, no longer rocking, just sort of leaning against the wall. The dress shortage wasn't an issue. Still, she wanted to go to the dance. "'It's no big deal,' she said. "'I'll manage. It'll be good to see old friends again.' "'Who is he, Betty Lynn?' "'Who?' "'You know who I'm talking about.' "'Oh, just someone I met.' "'Is he your boyfriend?' That's a difficult question to answer. Why is he doing this to you? Not every place is like Millville, Jim. There are so many worlds out there you don't know nothing about. Tell me where he stays in this world. I'll set him straight. This isn't right. Who can really say? This is all my fault. If I hadn't made you leave, you never would have left. You'd still be one of us. Part of me. Please, Jim. It's a joke, right? A Hollywood stunt. You're researching a part for your next movie. Uh, that's what my mom said. So you can stop pretending now. You know, Gibby Johnson did that to me when I was a kid. We were playing war, and he was a Nazi soldier, and we were done playing. I had to go in for lunch. My mom was calling me. But he wouldn't stop pretending. No matter how much I tried to act regular, no matter how much I pleaded with him, he kept it up and kept it up and he wouldn't stop. So we moved away, and two years later I ran into him at a ball game, and he shoved me up against a wall and screamed at me in guttural German. They never stop. I'm losing you, Betty Lynn. I lost you once before, and I'm losing you again. 
He knew he didn't have her this time around. But the words had been bouncing around in his head so long they just spilled out, and he knew that he was wrong, that she took it the wrong way, that someone else had her, and that wasn't right. She struggled to her feet and clattered her way back into the house. The Night of the Big Dance The Dance of the Doomed No, no, stay positive, Big Jim. Mom decorated the metal woman with flowers, lilacs and daisies in particular, to soften the blow. "'Thank you, Mrs. McDiffie,' said Betty Lynn. "'That's very sweet of you.' "'Isn't it time for you to get dressed, dear?' Mom said to Big Jim, who had a beer in one hand and a glass of wine in the other. Big Jim moped his way upstairs and found the salt-and-pepper suit he hadn't worn in years. It needed dry-cleaning, but there wasn't time now. No one would notice, anyway.' Their eyes would be elsewhere, even as much as they would want to look away. He tried to picture the evening, the stairs and the spit-takes when they shuffled into the gymnasium, the futile attempts at doing the Freddy, the small talk of the insane, the naming of the royalty, a big moment, and what if they won? They might. A big sympathy vote. Would there be a crown? Another appendage for her already heavy metal ensemble? Big Jim looked at himself in the mirror, then looked away, then turned the mirror so that it faced the wall, then turned so that he faced the wall, too, and just sat down and gulped his drinks. Eventually, the alcohol had the effect of making him think he had the nerve to go downstairs and face what his life had become. There was still hope, he told himself. He could save Betty Lynn yet, save himself. Yes, I can do it, he thought blearily. I can make a better life for myself. I can recover what I lost. The hopeful, got-the-world-by-the-tail fellow I used to be. I can do it. It was a heavy burden, being Betty Lynn, but with Big Jim's help, she was able to get down the front steps and across the driveway to his car. He opened the passenger door for her, but, try as she might, she wasn't able to maneuver into the bucket seat. She was simply too big to fit into the vehicle. Her sleek and medieval arms were locked into place, some distance from her side. No, she wasn't too wide. His car was too small. If only he had made a success out of his life, he would have been able to afford a luxury driving machine with room to spare for all the metal women in his life. Betty Lynn would have looked fine riding in the back seat of his Lincoln Town car. But a gremlin? No. So there they stood on the sidewalk. The dance a short half-hour and a long mile and three-quarters away, and no means to get there. He could see his mom in the window and knew what she was thinking. The shame came at him like a hot summer wind. "'We should just skip it,' Big Jim gallantly suggested. "'Stay home and listen to music or something. I've still got all my old eight-track tapes. We'll have our own party.' "'No,' Betty Lynn insisted. "'The dance is important to you.' I can make it, see? She began to move awkwardly, clanking down the street, threatening to topple over with every step. Big Jim put his arm around her and tried to help, but she was so cold, and he was so drunk. I should take her to the hospital, or to Clem's fix-it-up shop, thought Big Jim. He could help. They made it a block or two before Betty Lynn had to stop and lean against a lamp post. "'Let's go back home, Betty Lynn,' said Big Jim to the immobile object of his dreams. "'It's too far to the high school. We'll never make it. It'll be getting dark soon.' 
"'We can do it,' she said. "'It's not too much further.' Betty Lynn struggled onward a few feet before tipping over alongside a fire hydrant, metal striking metal, an echo that carried far in the darkness. "'The reunion isn't that important, Betty Lynn,' said Big Jim, trying to embrace her through the cold buffer. "'I had all sorts of ideas of what, what might happen there, but I don't care any more. I don't care what you look like or anything.' His voice got small, and he began to cry. "'I just want to be with you.' Out of the darkness behind came a dark figure, making a clattering noise. Big Jim felt his heart duck and cover, and the rest of him wanted to join in. He tried to see through the sheen of tears, wiped them from his eyes. The mysterious figure grew distinct and familiar. Big Jim stood up, took a step forward. Mom. She walked forward then, pulling Big Jim's ancient red Davy Crockett wagon behind her. Time to come home, Jimmy, she said in a soft, caring voice. Big Jim nodded, head down. They got Betty Lynn loaded on the wagon and headed back. Once they reached the driveway, they hoisted her to her feet and guided her back into the house. Let's put her back in her room, said Mom. She'll be more comfortable there. They maneuvered her up the stairs and down the hall. Betty Lynn didn't resist or say anything as they tucked her into bed. "'Poor dear. She needs her rest,' said Mom, quietly shutting Betty Lynn's door behind them, awaiting the last leg of her quaint journey. There were no answers to anything any more, Big Jim thought, laying on the floor of his room, the bottles of beer surrounding him like a magic circle. Just more questions. Every door that was opened, every painful struggle to make a life for himself, to find a place for himself in the land outside of the cocoon of Millville High, to bridge the gap between the inside Big Jim and the outside Bigger World, led like a branching creek in a score of different and probably disastrous directions. The masking of Betty Lynn was just another divorce, pink slip, booze fit. Lost in his thoughts, these new thoughts coming in his mother's house, the room of his childhood, beneath faded baseball pennants and dusty model airplanes still hanging from the ceiling, in the shadow of footballs from gridiron triumphs that seemed like yesterday, the past was far too alive for comfort. Lost in thoughts, big Jim McDiffie, who would have believed it. Lost in thoughts, when the clack, clack, Clack sound came again from down the hall. Big Jim felt no panic. He felt as calm as he had at any stage in his life. He climbed out of bed on the final night of the quiet siege and followed the well-worn path down the hall to Betty Lynn's room, weaving as he walked, the alcohol still having a good old time in his bloodstream. The door was closed. He gave it a gentle push with the palm of his hand. The moon beamed into her room a wave of ice-cream whiteness falling across her bed. He tried to focus his eyes. She wasn't in the bed. She wasn't in the room at all. There was an indentation in the bed, on the white sheets matching her form, but no Betty Lynn. Gone. She was gone. There was something on the bed, though, Big Jim saw through his blurry angst. Something left behind a small trinket about the size of a coin. He came to the bedside. 
an off-trail combination of the sleek and medieval, intersecting loops of silver, funny and perfect. Big Jim looked at the window, at the empty street, not even a strange shadow to break the spell, all roads leading into darkness, forever darkness. There are so many worlds out there you don't know nothing about. Then Big Jim retreated to his boyhood room, that hauntingly familiar bed, squeezing the old ring tight in the palm of his hand until he fell asleep. You know, at the end, I was left wondering what to make of it all. And who was that mysterious visitor? I suppose perhaps in the end it could have just been the fevered dream of a man who'd lost it all and simply couldn't hold on to reality any longer. Or perhaps it was something altogether different. Speaking of moving on, that brings us to the end of our show this week. Wow, it's hard to believe we've been doing this for a full year now. How time flies when you're having fun. We have certainly had fun bringing you fantasy fiction week after week this last year, and we hope you have enjoyed our offerings and that you'll continue to come back for more. As you may recall, we were hoping to be nominated for a Parsec Award this year since this is our first year in existence, and we are eligible for the Best New Speculative Fiction Podcaster Team category. I'm very pleased to announce that we have successfully been nominated, and it's all thanks to our listeners. Next step is for us to actually win the category. To that end, we will be submitting our contribution for review in the coming weeks. In addition, we are also hoping to take home a Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Story, Small Cast, Short Form. Anything that we have or will run from May the 1st, 2014 to April 30th, 2015 is eligible. There is a complete list of the eligible stories on our FFF website. So if there was a specific story featured on Farfetched Fables that absolutely blew your mind, please feel free to nominate it. As always, the legal stuff. Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but you can't change it and you can't sell it. And be sure that you give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. One last thing before I wrap up this momentous show. Remember to mix it up. And I'm not just talking about your cocktail. Adjust your tactics. Keep your nemeses guessing. And always, always, smile at the postman. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.